morning. This morning we welcome Jordan Griesbeck from All Saints to our pulpit. And he's going to be preaching from Exodus 16. So if you turn with me to page 8 in your bulletins, we'll read from Exodus 16. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died <clears throat> by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I, might, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness. And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna, and put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I'm sorry. <laughs> Let me read that again. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so the Lord <clears throat> as the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna forty years till they came to the habitable land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. An omer is the tenth part of an ephah. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, friends. Uh, my name is Jordan, and I am a pastor at All Saints. I'm across town. I'm the assistant pastor of youth there, which means that I oversee our ministry to 6th or 12th graders and their families. Uh, thanks for hanging in there in that long passage. Uh, if you fell asleep, though, you have no excuse since you got an extra hour last night. But... Grace and Peace, I want you to know, Grace and Peace is such an encouragement to this city and to our denomination. And we at All Saints, like, we really thank God for you. 
Uh, you're an encouragement to us. We pray for you often. I just thank you for your lives here in Central Austin. Um, you've been looking at the story of Exodus this fall, the story that shapes really the course of the whole Bible. And it's a story that has shaped the lives of the church for ages and ages, especially those ch uh, churches who have found themselves in oppressed times, in times of oppression. The story has given them hope and purpose. Uh, and so as you are kind of in this season in the life of your church, I hope that this story really shapes the experience of your church as well, as you are in between pastors, as you are having to deal with a different pastor every week coming up here and talking to you. I imagine it's fatiguing in some ways, but I really hope that this story will really shape and guide and encourage you all. Well, in the 19th century, there was a German philosopher named Ludwig Feuerbach, and Ludwig Feuerbach was a materialist, which essentially means that he believed that man is no more than matter. That what it means to be a person is to be nothing more than a basic set of biological needs and wants. And this is why Feuerbach once said famously that man is what he eats. Nothing more, nothing less, man is simply what he eats. It's been pointed out that perhaps Feuerbach spoke more truly than he knew. As one theologian says, Feuerbach was expressing without knowing it the most religious idea of man. For long before Feuerbach, the same definition of man was actually given by the Bible. And it's true. From the beginning of the Bible to the end, from Genesis 1 to Exodus 16 to John 6 and to the end of Revelation, man is what he eats. We see this over and over again. So as we join the Israelites in the wilderness this morning, here's the question I want us to ask. It's a simple question. The question is, what are you eating? What are you eating? And to answer that question, we're going to look at two points. First of all, the hunger of death, and second of all, the bread of life. So the hunger of death and the bread of life. Well, you'll see immediately in our passage, it begins with hunger. In verse 2, we see that Israel has only been in the wilderness for about a month and a half now, but they are already so hungry they could die. Verse 3, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. And they begin to turn conspiratorial. They turn to Moses and Aaron and they say, you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill us. You want us to kill us with hunger. So Israel is hungry and they're angry and they are what my millennial friends would call hangry. That's what they are. Now, I don't know what meat pots are, Okay. And I don't know that anyone really does. I'm sure they were delicious, but I do know this. However good they were, they were not worth going back to Egypt for. Okay, it's only been 40 days or so, and Israel has already forgotten that Egypt was the land of death. It was the people that enslaved them. It was the people that killed their infants. This is not a place you want to go back to. But friends, this is us. In our lives, in our world, we're often so driven by our hunger and we're driven by our desires that we'll do anything to have this or that again. Even if it ensnares us, even if it puts us back into bondage, we want them. We want this, we want that. We'll do anything for the meat pots, anything to feel full again, even if it's just for a second. So my wife's in the front row. She is 38 weeks pregnant. So after the service, please come up and uh, lay a hand on her belly and pray for our child. Because uh, our whole lives are about to change. But recently, in our, uh, in our last few moments together, before we become three, we've been watching the show Mad Men. 
And many of you probably watched this show on AMC. It was a huge show for a number of years, a few years ago. And I, I certainly don't commend everything about Mad Men. But what I really appreciate about Mad Men is how realistically it portrays the hunger of our world. Because if you'll remember the show, or if you've seen it, it's about these advertising agents on Madison Avenue in downtown Manhattan in the 1960s. And everyone in Mad Men is hungry. Everyone in Mad Men is hungry. They're going on two-hour martini lunches in downtown Manhattan. They're eating steaks and they're smoking cigars. They're having affairs. They're trying out Eastern religions. They're buying sports cars. They're cutting deals. They're climbing the corporate ladder. But all of them are deeply, deeply hungry and alone. The madmen are in the wilderness. They're trapped in the wilderness of cigar smoke, chasing the meat pots and ending up in chains. That's who they are. What's particularly tragic, I think, about these madmen is that they sell to the world something that they do not possess themselves, and that is happiness. The main character, Don Draper, says advertising is based on one thing, happiness. The smell of a new car, freedom from fear, a billboard on the side of the road that screams reassurance that whatever you are doing is okay. But Draper himself later admits, what is happiness? Happiness is the moment before you need more happiness. You get hungry even though you've just eaten. Turning back to the text, let's look at the way Moses responds to the people's hunger, because I think it's very interesting. Because first in verse 7, then again in verse 8, he responds to their hunger with a question. He asks them, what are we? In other words, what are Aaron and I that you grumble against us in your hunger? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord, Moses says. What Moses is telling Israel and what he's telling us is that our hunger is actually none of his business. That it isn't really him they're grumbling against, it's actually God. And friends, I think that of all the things we crave in this life, whether it's money or whether it's sex, whether it's power, whatever it might be, if all these things could be honest with us, even for one second, they really would say to us what Moses says to Israel here. They would say to us, what are we? Why do you grumble against me? Why do you think that I can fix or solve your hunger? As one theologian, Alexander Schmemann, says in his book, For the Life of the World, man is a hungry being, but he is hungry for God. All desire is finally a desire for him. So friends, in a sense, we can understand the whole story of the scriptures, not only the story of Exodus, but the story of all of the Bible through this lens of man's hunger for God. Because think about it, the Bible has this thing for food, it really does. Right after God creates Adam, one of the first things he says to him in Genesis 1.29 is, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit, and you shall have them for food. One of the very first things that God says to Adam is to eat, to eat. He gives him the whole garden as a gift, as this portal, as this way of connecting with him and rejoicing with him and communing with him. But then what happens? Satan leads Adam into choosing the hunger that leads not to God, but the hunger that leads to death. Adam takes and eats from the one tree in the garden he's not allowed to, the one tree which God has told him will actually kill him. Really what Adam does when he sins is he grumbles. 
He eats in defiance of God. He eats with ingratitude towards God. He eats in order to move not towards God, but away from him. And as a result, he is kicked out of the garden and into the wilderness, east of Eden. And ever since we've been there with him, Israel has been there with him, we've been there with him, in the wilderness, wandering around in a haze, confused about what it is exactly that will give us life. So we eat the things that lead to our death. We eat the things that are forbidden, or else we eat things that are good, but we tight-fist them and ask them to be our God. So again, the question is, what are you eating? Teenagers and college students, think about your life on social media for a second. Okay? Deep down, the reason that we go to social media, the reason that we go to Snapchat, the reason we go to Instagram is because we are hungry. We're hungry to know that we matter and that we are loved and we are capable of loving other people. We go to them wondering if we have been left out. And oftentimes it's so easy to see hunger in younger people that we pick on them, we shame them. But just because they haven't learned to hide their hunger yet like we adults do. Because adults, we're hungry as well. For us, it just takes different forms. Think about money for a second. There's a reason that Jesus talks about money so much. There's also a reason that Pink Floyd called money a gas. Because money is guttural. It gets down into our bones and it fuels us. It fuels us into new worlds. For men, oftentimes we believe that money will fuel us into a world of power, a world of pleasure. Money tells us that we matter. And oftentimes for women, money fuels us into a sense of security or a sense of safety. It tells us that we're safe. Whatever it is, when we have money, when we have stuff, when we have things, it's really easy to feel full. I think that's particularly true in Austin, Texas. I mean, think about the great riches of our city. We have a world-class university. We're on the short list for Amazon, HQ2. We have all these amazing restaurants, Uchi and Uchiko. It's in a city of amazing cultural riches. It really is, and it's easy to feel full here. But eventually, all of us, like Israel, we come to the wilderness. When we come to the wilderness, we find that we're hungry. When we're hungry, we grumble. And when we're hungry, we see what it is that we've been feeding on all along. What it is that we've been feeding on and centering our lives upon, what we've been looking to, to sustain us. Maybe some of you are in the wilderness this morning. Maybe you have three or four young kids, and all of those kids play three or four young sport, or three or four sports, and they're, you're exhausted. Your family's exhausted. Others of you, perhaps, you're miserable. You hate your job, or you hate your boss, you hate your spouse. You're struggling to feel content. Others of you would do anything to have a spouse. You'd do anything to have someone to or maybe to just sit with someone to be with you in your loneliness. Others of you aren't in the wilderness at all. You feel great this morning. Life seems to be clicking on all cylinders. But wherever you are, the wilderness does come. It really does. It does come. And in the wilderness, again, we get hungry. And it forces us to ask what we've been eating. And friends, maybe some of you aren't Christians yet. And you're still testing the claims of Christianity. Okay? Well, here's one of the most basic claims of Christianity. And that is that the only thing that will sustain your life in the wilderness is Christ himself. It's the only thing. Because really, at its core, the Bible is an invitation to fullness. It's this invitation to feed upon God, even as Israel fed upon manna in the wilderness. And that's why the prophet Isaiah pleads with us in Isaiah 55 and says, Why do you spend your money 
for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. So let's turn secondly to our second point and see where that rich food might be found. And secondly, how do we begin to feed upon it more and more to our lives? So let's move on to point two, the bread of life. Well, those of you who know me, and I know a few of you know that I have an eating out problem, okay? My wife knows this very well. I've often said that if I had all the money in the world, I wouldn't want like a second home or a really nice car. What I'd really want is just the ability and the freedom to eat out every night. I love to eat out. I love food. But I also love food writing. I love reading about food. And one of the words that you'll often hear food writers use to describe certain meals or certain dishes is that they were a revelation. It's like they don't know whatever other word to use. They say, this meal was a revelation. This wine was a revelation. I never knew that Pinot Noir could taste like that. I never knew that French fries could be that, that crispy on the outside and that soft on the inside. It was a revelation. And that's actually a little bit like what this manna is supposed to do for Israel here in our passage. It's meant to reveal. It's meant to reveal a couple of things. First of all, it's meant to reveal who Yahweh, their God, is. And secondly, it's meant to reveal who Israel, his people, is. So first of all, who Yahweh is. Look at verse 4. God says, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. Why? Verse 6, so that you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So the first thing that Yahweh wants to remind Israel of and reveal to them is the fact that he is a deliverer. He delivers. It's what he does. Then secondly, in verse 7, we see that God also chooses to rain bread so that Israel might see God's glory. In the Old Testament, you'll know that glory in the Hebrew is weighty. To be glorious is to have gravity. That which is glorious is real. It is the most real, weighty. And oftentimes people read passages like this, passages that seem miraculous, and they see them as unreal. But throughout the Bible, the scriptures are always forcing us to ask whether the shoe is actually on the other foot. And whether it's the world of God and the world of heaven and the world of miracles and manna that is actually real, and whether it's our world weakened by sin, which is actually unreal. So Yahweh is the God of reality. That's what he's showing you here. He's the God of glory. He's the God of weightiness. Then in verse 8, we get the third reason, the third thing that God wants to reveal to Israel about who he is, and that is that he hears them. Verse 8, I'm raining bread because I've heard you. Where, who has not heard in the Exodus story, it was Pharaoh, right? Moses went to Pharaoh over and over again, demanding and begging that he'd let God's people go, and Pharaoh never listened. But God here, the first sign of his people's dissatisfaction, their grumbling, he listens to them, he hears them, he provides for them. So friends, Yahweh is a God who listens, it's what he does. In his grace, sometimes he does not always answer our prayers we know that he always hears us. He hears us in a way that other people and other things in our world do not. So manna reminds Israel of who Yahweh is. He delivered them in a way that chariots or horses never could. They listened to them in a way that Pharaoh never would. And he will provide for them in a way that meat pots never will. 
who he is. Then we see in verse 4 that this manna was also supposed to show Israel who they were, to show us who we are, to test them and to see whether they would begin to orient their lives around Yahweh and his food or around something else. So we learn in verse 35 that for 40 years, that's a long time, for 40 years, Israel's life, all of their mornings, all of their evenings, all of their going outs and their comings in on their long journey to the promised land, their entire calendar was oriented around manna and meat. It was oriented around food from God. Well, then we also see in verse 35 that eventually the bread stops and the feedings end. And it's interesting to ask why that was. And on a surface level, of course, it was because they had reached the promised land. They had reached the land flowing with milk and honey. They didn't need manna anymore. But I think at a deeper level, the feeding stopped, the manna ends, because God knows that Israel is going to need more than manna in order to feel full. That's why hundreds of years later, the people of Israel, they're in the wilderness again. And this time, they're being oppressed, not by Pharaoh, but by the Romans. And they're wondering whether Yahweh is going to show up for them again. Is he going to show up for them in Galilee, on a hillside by a lake, in the same way that he showed up for them in the wilderness? Is he going to feed them? So in John chapter 6, we meet 5,000 of these Israelites, and they're sitting on a hill. And imagine this, they're hungry. So this man, Jesus, this man they've been hearing about, he takes five loaves of bread and he takes two fish and he creates enough food to feed them all. And afterwards, the crowd begins to follow Jesus around because they want free food. And who can really blame them? But Jesus doesn't give them more free food. He doesn't give them more bread. Instead, he begins to preach about our very passage, Exodus 16. He begins talking about a bread that is greater than manna, a bread of life. And he says, I am that bread. You need more than manna. You need a bread of life, and that bread of life is me. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will never be hungry again. But what does Israel begin to do? Imagine this once again. The Jews begin to grumble, and they say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And we learn that in John 6, this is turning point in Jesus's ministry where because of these hard things that he's saying, many of his followers begin to turn back. They begin to turn back so much so that Jesus looks at his disciples and says, are you going to leave me too? But Peter stands up and says for the group, Lord, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? And friends, it's true. Jesus does have the words of eternal life. He is the rich food that Isaiah talked about. He is the bread that Exodus 16 pointed towards. We're hungry for God, and he is God. We need forgiveness. We grumble, and he forgives. We're tired and exhausted, and he gives us his rest. Friends, if you've received this Jesus as God, if you've been baptized, even as the precious child was baptized into this community this morning, The great hope for your life and the great hope of heaven is that one day you will sit down at the marriage supper and you'll never be hungry again. That's the great hope of the gospel. So where else are you going to go? That's a question not only for this church and the church universal, but also for our world. Because what are we going to eat? Where are we going to go to feed? Well, we're now halfway through the fall semester, but the Christmas holidays 
are coming. And I recently saw a graphic online that compared kids' eating schedules when they're in school versus kids' eating schedules when they're out of school, okay? And here's what the graphic said. Parents, you can tell me after this sounds familiar. Here's during the school year. 7.30 a.m., breakfast. 11 a.m., school snack. 1 p.m., lunch. 3.30 p.m., afternoon snack. 8 p.m., dinner. Pretty easy. It's not bad. But here's when they're out of school. 7.30 a.m., morning snack. 8.05 a.m., breakfast. 8.59 a.m., snack. 10 a.m., lunch. 10.47 a.m., snack. 11.58 a.m., what's for lunch? 12.03 p.m., snack. 1.21 p.m., can I have a dessert? 2.07 p.m., what's for lunch? 2.15 p.m., snack. 2.27 p.m., what's for dinner? 2.58 to 5.59 p.m., snacks. 6 p.m., dinner. 7.02 p.m., what's for dinner? 7.05 p.m., one last snack. This is probably what we're about to experience as we have a baby as well. But it's true. Every hour of the day, we as people are hungry. And we're not just hungry for food. We're hungry for God. So as we close this morning, I want us to think about the fact that as a Christian, repentance for us is really changing what we eat. It's changing what we eat and how we eat and how often we eat. It is learning to orient our lives around God's food in the same way that Israel oriented their lives around manna and around meat for 40 years. Okay, so how do we begin to do that? How do we begin to orient our lives around God's food? Well, I think here's where it starts. It starts right here. It starts right here each and every Sunday at the Lord's table where you take, God spreads his table in the wilderness of your life every Sunday and you take and eat. And you eat his body and you drink his blood it's amazing to think, and the C.S. Lewis quote that's in your bulletin really gets at this, it's amazing to think that God didn't have to reveal himself through things like bread and wine, but he does. He didn't have to reveal himself through these things, but he does. And he does so because he knows that we are sensual people, that we need to taste him, and we need to see him, that we need to touch him, the same way that Thomas wanted to touch Christ's wounds. We need to taste and see that God is good. And what this tells us is that being a Christian isn't just about knowing the right things or even doing the right things, but it's also about tasting and seeing that God is good. And it begins to happen here. But then second of all, God in his kindness, he doesn't just give us this table every Sunday. I think he also spreads little tables throughout our week. He gives us these little moments here and there to commune with him, to give thanks to him. And sometimes these tables, these little tables, they do take the form of literal meals. If the world teaches us anything, it's again that meals can be these deeply spiritual and even revelatory experiences. I know that all of you can remember meals like this. You can remember meals where you've sat around a table with family and with friends and, and, and where the sum of the meal was really greater than its parts. There was something happening at that meal. I can remember a couple of these meals in my own life. One was eating a dinner in Paris with my dad that lasted three hours. Another was at a place called Canyon Grill on top of Lookout Mountain where I just finished a long summer eating really bad camp food. And then I went to this restaurant with all my camp friends and we ate this amazing feast. And some of you have meals like this. But it doesn't have to be fancy meals either. It can be any meal. And this is why Sean and Nicholas in her book Bread and Wine says... 
that those of us who believe that all of life is sacred, every crumb of bread and every sip of wine is a kind of Eucharist. It's a kind of remembrance. It's a call to awareness and holiness right where we are. So what she says to us is that when you eat, I want you to think of God, of the provision we are given every time we eat. When you eat bread and when you drink wine, I want you to think about the body and the blood every time. Not just when the bread and the wine show up in church, but when they show up anywhere. So this is the big table, but there are also little tables throughout our week. And meals, we have to eat. So meals give us these two, three, four times a day built in where we can give thanks to God and pause and commune with him. What about the times when we aren't eating? Well, 1 Timothy says that everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. What Timothy, what Paul teaches in Timothy, is that just as God gave Adam the whole garden and said, take and eat and feed upon me, in the same way, God has given us all of life as an opportunity to worship him and to feed upon him. This actually means that things like Snapchat and Instagram and Fortnite and laundry and changing diapers, and taking out the trash, and doing the dishes, and sending emails, and editing spreadsheets, all of these things can be opportunities to feed upon God, if only we do them in thanksgiving, and not grumbling. There's a table here, there are these little tables throughout our week, but there's also the feast of God's word. Here's what Moses says to Israel in Deuteronomy. He says, in the wilderness, God humbled you, and he let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Friends, God has given us Jesus, the word of life, and he has given us this book, the Bible, where every story points to him and every story allows us to feed upon him. Friends, there's a reason the Hebrew word for meditate, to meditate upon God's word, is to chew and to gnaw. Okay, because this book, the Bible, is something that even though it can feel confusing at times, okay, as we navigate our way, as we pick our way through it, it can feel like a wilderness. It really is a table in the wilderness for us to feed upon God. All right, well, we started by quoting Feuerbach, who said famously that man is what he eats. And we say, we're, what we've been saying is that Feuerbach was at least half right, okay, because in the Bible, Exodus 16, John 6, All across the board, man is what he eats. In other words, the course of a man's life is ultimately determined by whether he goes back to Egypt and chases after meat pots or whether he learns to feed upon God alone. In closing, I'm actually going to pick on Feuerbach one more time because he also had another line about eating. He said, if you want to improve mankind, don't give them sermons, give them better food. And once more, Feuerbach really is at least half right, okay? Because this world and our city and our neighbors, they do need sermons, but they also do need better food. In some cases, our neighbors actually need better physical food. But in every case, they need better spiritual food. And that's why really perhaps the greatest joy of the Christian life happens when we are so infused with the life of God from his table, from his word, with his spirit, that we actually become life for our neighbors. We are so filled with the bread of life that we actually become bread for our neighbors.
And you are actually doing this. Like, y'all are already doing this as a congregation. Like, you're doing it through your ministry with mobile loaves and fishes, in which you're giving people not only better physical food, but also by your presence, better spiritual food. But it's happening in other ways as well. For some of you, you're doing it by being hospitable. Some of you have invited my wife and I into your home since we've been in Austin. So you become the bread of life by inviting your neighbors over for dinner. And even though you're busy, and even though the dining room table is cluttered, you invite them in. And some of you are doing this by growing relationships with your business partners. Maybe you take your business partners to lunch, and they begin to learn that you do this thing called taking a Sabbath. And like, why would you ever do that? And they begin to wonder what it is about you. Something seems different. Or maybe you're in elementary school or you're in middle school and your friends start to notice that in the lunchroom, in a lunchroom like this, you will eat with anyone. You're not worried about your popularity. You're not worried about how, whether it'll, it'll advance you to eat with this person or another. You don't care. You'll eat with anybody. And when you do all of these things, what begins to happen is that you begin to put in your neighbors a certain hunger. You begin to show to your neighbors something they didn't even realize, and that is how hungry they are. It's how hungry they are for better food. And, and as I work with teenagers in Austin, it's my sense that it's becoming harder and harder for people in our world to realize that they need forgiveness. But it's becoming easier and easier for people to see that they need fullness, okay? In other words, it can be harder and harder to convince people that they are sinful, but it's easier and easier to show people that they're empty. Perhaps fullness moves them towards feeling a need for forgiveness because they're all hungry. We're hungry and they're hungry. So my prayer for you in closing is that grace and peace will be what we pray at the Eucharist each and every Sunday at All Saints. And the prayer is this. As this bread is Christ's body for us, send us out to be the body of Christ to the world. All right, let's pray. Almighty God, we do thank you for giving us the rich food of Christ. I thank you for my friends, my neighbors here at Grace and Peace. I pray that you will continue to prosper them, provide for them, and send them out to be your bread in the world. We ask all these things by the Spirit, in your Son's name.